Thank you, Jerry. In athletics, there's a neat parallel to our text this morning. Coaches, experienced coaches will speak of this. You'll see this in watching various sports teams. When the athletes begin to believe, not simply know that they have a reliable coach, a, a good coach, but that the coach is skilled and wants good for them, which means that, that the coach is, is placing the athlete in the best position that they can be in to be successful. Once a player begins to believe that, they begin to understand things well enough to be able to react, to, to begin to instinctually execute the playbook that they, athletes begin to speak of it as, I'm not thinking so much. I'm able to, to execute what I've been taught to do. How good it is, how freeing it is to be such an athlete, to trust your coach, to know that your coach cares for you and wants good for you. In our text this morning, as our elder Jerry Alexander read for us, we see this play out in our lives as well. The reality that God loves us. To really take a moment, this elementary truth that we tell children at the very beginning and speak of God is love, God loves you. But as believers that begin in life to go through various hardships, various trials, for our allegiance in Christ, perhaps others treating us unjustly, to be reminded that He loves us, that He is good, that He is perfect and holy and just, and He has placed us perfectly in human history, in the place that we live, in the days that He's allotted to us, that we may glorify Him. No matter the hurts, the little whiles that come into our life, we can trust Him, and in this way, we're freed to focus on the task at hand. Not to be caught up in, in all the worries or questioning God's faithfulness, but instead trusting that, that He, the one that we cannot see, the one that we love, as Peter told us in chapter 1, that He is good and trustworthy. And so through suffering and trials, we can focus on doing good. That's the blessing that we have as a reminder this morning in this season, this Advent season, to remember the true hope and joy and peace and love that we have received in the coming of Christ. So, beloved, as we look to this first central idea, the central idea of our text this morning, that we are so loved by our faithful Creator, King, and Judge that we can focus upon doing good in our little while. As an athlete's able to focus on executing the, the assignment before them, we too, because of the goodness and faithfulness and trustworthiness of our God who loves us, we can focus on doing good, even to those that may mistreat us. Let's look at this as we unpack this in three different components. The first, in verses 12 through 13, we learn or we're reminded that our loving king made no mistake in deploying us for this little while. Again, the little while is coming from this theme of First Peter, that if necessary, if for a little while, the Lord should count us worthy for suffering, trials. Today we'll see them referred to as fiery trials. Look what he says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Beloved. Beloved. Beloved is not simply a, a word that you may think of 
from watching an old film, Beloved. But beloved is a very identity marker for each of us in Christ. The, the truth of how God has so loved us now begins to transform us and that we're able to show love to others. So when He speaks here in all the rest of Scripture that we're able to show love, when, when Jesus says that if a soldier were to ask them to go one mile, carry their pack two miles, I say, this, this, is, this is not of this world. It's a, it's a not of this world type transformation. It's a not of this world type love. And it's, it's because he doesn't say, you work harder and muster the love up to show to somebody else. But because we've received the love of God in Christ, the Holy One, just as Pastor Stephen shared with us a few moments ago as he set up our time of worship together. But the fact that we are beloved, the beloved of God. The love of God impacts us and transforms our very understanding so that we're freed up as unbelievers may mistreat us or slander us to respond not with slander, not with reviling, but with love, with blessing. And he calls these things fiery trials. Not fiery in the sense that they're about to be escalated to physical violence, though we know that will come in a matter of decades for these believers in present-day Turkey, some 2,000 years ago. But fiery trials in the sense of chapter 1, that the Lord is working this. Look, as a matter of fact, look back into chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Look at chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 6 and 7. I think he's making an intentional allusion, a reminder back to what he told them here in chapter 1 when he speaks of these fiery trials that come upon you to test you. Look how he stated it back in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He said these, these trials occur so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious, more precious, fiery trials, more precious. I think people will describe 2020 in a lot of ways, but I've never heard somebody refer to it as Precious. Maybe in the way that a southern woman might refer to something as precious. But this is a genuine preciousness. That though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials that, we, that come upon a believer who's standing steadfast in Christ are as a, a, a caring, expert blacksmith allowing these fiery refining of the metal before them. That's how much the Lord loves us to be able to work and to try us and to test us and to preserve us through all of these things that we may stand firm in faith, that we have Him, we have a greater grasp upon Him and a lighter grasp upon the things of this world that are temporary. Look at how He identifies these. He speaks and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, we've seen this word actually before. Look back up into 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. This is surprising. Do not be surprised. 1 Peter 4, 4. He's used this word previously. And he's used this word to describe the believers, their faithfulness in Christ, so the repentant life that the believer lives. They're, they're, they're thinking differently. Their minds are changing. Their minds are being renewed. They're living differently. In the unbelieving world, they're no longer doing the things that they used to do. And he gave us that list in verse 2 and 3. 
It says the unbelieving world, they look at you, they look at the transformation of your life, they know you, you've not been kidnapped, you've not moved, but you're, you're, you're now different. And the change of your life, the fruitfulness of the Spirit in your life is doing what he says in verse 4. Look at how it's causing the watching world to respond. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised. It's descriptive. They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. It's that word is used here as well, but not as a, a description, but as a command. That the believers then are not to be surprised to command when unbelievers bring fiery trials upon them. Trials of insults and mockery. Don't be surprised when those things happen. So we see a connection of these two components of surprise. And this gives us a clear understanding of what the pressure that believers all through church history and today all around the world, even including here, may experience. So here it is. A, a believer, we, we repent and we place our faith and trust in Jesus, the sinless Son of God, clothed in flesh, fully God, fully man, who laid His light on the cross for us. And we've trusted in Him and His righteousness. His right standing has been given over to our account. And we live our lives in following and resting in what Christ has done for us. And we proclaim the hope that is in Christ to all who will but repent and turn and trust in Jesus will have life eternal, forgiveness of sins. And Jesus lived and died and rose again. He's ascended and He will come again one day. In this submission to Christ, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We submit to Him by the Word. The Spirit convicts us and comforts us and speaks to us and guides us. And we live these active, repentant lives. The watching world sees the transformation and it says they are surprised at this that we're changing. And the surprise that begins to happen leads them to increase their insults. So remember, there's one of two things that happens. The watching, unbelieving world looks at the transformation of the believer's life or of the congregation's life and purposes. Their commitment and joy in Christ and making disciples, it leads them to do one of two things. Either to repent and themselves come to faith in Christ or to want to silence that witness. And at this point in the church, it's not, in this area, it's not to silence them by force. It's to silence them by mocking. It's to silence them by slander. It's to shame them into silence. And so he tells the believer here, because nobody wants to be shamed, he tells them here, you believer, the command now, don't be surprised at the fact that the world is not embracing you because of your commitment to Christ and the freedom and joy you have now in Christ and you're called to be and make disciples of Christ. Don't be surprised at the reviling that you're receiving from the unbelieving world. Do not be surprised, but we count these things joy. He says rejoicing. Counterintuitive. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. These trials, these little whiles, are but little whiles. So the believer can have rejoicing, but we ought never be surprised. Because what's taking place is simply what will happen. The believer then has to reconcile, and this is the joy of being a part of a local church body, a, 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 a body of baptized believers committed to being and making disciples of Christ. Because when the shame of the world happens, and we've seen before in this text, it's costing people family relations, literal family relationships. It's costing them friends. It's probably costing them economically at this point. Certainly costing them social capital. And the temptation when we're shamed is to do what? To silence ourselves. 
We see that even in our own culture with the idea of believer. You can believe whatever you want inside your church walls, right? Believe whatever you want in the context of your home. There's there's pressure. There's very real pressure. But he tells the body, don't shrink at the pressure or the slander or the insults, but rather rejoice. Rejoice. Don't stop making disciples, but and continue making disciples even more so for the glory of God, for a day is coming, even though you do not yet see Him. A day is coming when He will be revealed. So continue faithfully. We are loved by our Father, our faithful Creator, King, and Judge, that we can focus on doing good in a little while. As we look at verse 14 and 15, we note that our loving King deployed the Spirit within us. Our loving King deployed the Holy Spirit within us. When we came to faith in Christ, we were regenerated, brought to life. He deposited the the person of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. What does the Holy Spirit, how does He work inside of us? He makes us a peculiar people. To an unbelieving world, He makes us a, a distinct people. We've been set apart. We look peculiar to the world as the Spirit's working fruit in our lives. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. The old saying, you've heard it before, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We tell children that. I remember saying that when I was a kid. We tell children that. Why do we tell children that statement? It's a little creed. Why do we catechize children in that little creed? Because words do hurt. We wouldn't have to make it a creed if it wasn't so. It's just words. It doesn't. It does hurt. And we can be honest. It does hurt. And even as adults, sometimes we may be embarrassed when that one negative statement or our criticism or an insult. It sticks with us longer. And that may bother us. I should have thicker skin. That shouldn't bother me. I know it doesn't bother me. It's the adult version of sticks and stones. But it bothers us. And on a cultural setting, on a societal setting, the words of the world, this mass influence, these insults, they are powerful. And if we just put our head down and ignore it, then we're making a huge mistake. We could acknowledge that, no, that, that, that is powerful. The Lord is greater, and, and I want to stand fast in Christ, but the power of the world's insults, that does hurt me. It, it, it ought not to shame me and stop me, but I can be honest with my beloved, the, the, the body of Christ, I'm a part of the local body, and I can say, this, this is hard, but let's continue abiding in Christ. Let us not shrink back from doing good. Insults have always been a part of what it is to be a peculiar people. We see it in the Old Testament Scriptures, in the New Testament Scriptures. We see it even with the Apostle Paul. He goes and he stands before, uh, in Acts chapter 26, he stands before Festus, who's this proconsul. He's in charge of, like a little governor, he's in charge of the finances for this whole region. And Paul tries to share Christ with him in Acts 26 so quickly. And it leads Felix to say, Paul, your learning, your great learning has made you crazy. 
It's made you mad that you would so quickly think you could persuade me. You've lost your mind. There's so many different spaces. We see Jesus, of course, wearing those insults of who he's eating with and associating with. Of course, he's calling them to Christ, but he's with them. He's unashamed. But they try to shame him. All through history, we could look through, I mean, countless examples all through the world of different cultures and different seasons and times and the insults that the world has given. So I want to take just one of those little fragments. At the end of the second century, there's a work called the Octavius of uh, Minicuous Felix. Rolls right off your tongue. (laughs) Right off a cliff. The Octavius of Minicuous Felix was translated into English not too long ago. It was a work in the second century, and it's set in a way that there is a believer, a Christian named Octavius, and and a pagan named Cecilius. And the writer presents it in a way of this dialogue that goes back and forth as they're walking along on this area of, uh, of Rome, this port city. And it captures many of the insults that the pagans are making towards the Christians in the second century. And it's written as a polemic. It's written as a way to anticipate the questions, the accusations that the unbelievers are giving and answering them, but in a dialogue type of way. And so in that work, there's numerous insults that are being given to Christians, applied to Christians, shouted to Christians. And so he captures many of them and he articulates them. I want to read seven of them. And I'll read a little section of each of these. But here's seven insults that believers in second century Rome, at least late second century, uh, that the author was aware of. Number one, that the Christians were anti-patriotic and anti-social snobs. Here's part of the accusation that the pagan Cecilius makes towards Octavius the Christian. He says, you Christians are anti-social snobs who do not show proper respects at our anniversary festivals when we pay respects of sacrifice to the emperor. This was the case. The Christians would not make high sacrifices to Caesar, and it caused them to look anti-patriotic. And it also made the Christians in the Roman Empire a great scapegoat. Because when bad things happen, they could easily blame it on the Romans to say that the gods are angry at us because you do not honor them. You don't participate. You've withdrawn yourself from the pagan components. They wouldn't say the pagan components, but but they're pagan components of the culture. Second, they're called cannibals. Cannibals who eat the flesh of their children at their regular gatherings. I've been called a lot of things. I've never been called a cannibal. But it's and he answers it as the fact that they're intentionally misunderstanding what's happening at the Lord's Supper. They're intentionally taking this and accusing them of being cannibals. Perhaps some echo of what we even see with Jesus when he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, right, you have no part uh, in the kingdom. And it leads people to say, was well, he telling us he wants us to eat him? It seems like perhaps some kind of carryover that's taking place there. Third, direct despising. There's just there's several insults in this work. It's about 150 pages or so. So one of the quotes, one of the spots, he tells them, Nobody likes you, and it would be better if you and your Jesus were never born. That gets right to the point. Merciless. This is fascinating. Listen to this. Merciless. So Cecilius the pagan, he argues that it's more merciful 
to expose disabled and unwanted children in the elements. So when you had the child and found it was uh, either disabled or they didn't want to keep it, they could put the child in the elements and it would be, it would die. And Christians would go and gather around and gather these exposed children, exposed to the elements. And they would take them in and they'd raise them. And so Christians from the very beginning were certainly a pro-life, pro-birth, pro-life people. But he calls them merciless because he says it is cruel that that child should grow up in a home knowing that they were not wanted by their own family. So an act of mercy that we would see the Christians doing by the pagan culture was seen as merciless to cause that child to grow up instead of allowing nature to take its course or the child to grow up knowing that they were undesired by their biological family. Christians were also accused of being incestual. incestual. They lived with a professed love for each other. That was a cultural component. Greet each other with a holy kiss. We see that at the end of 1 Peter of how believers were to interact. And he points out in this work that one of the reasons that this is happening is because many of the churches, because they're made up of servants and others or people that have to work through the day, are meeting before the sun ever comes up. So keep that in mind when January 10th we start back with a 9 o'clock service. If that sounds too early, we could start meeting before the sun comes up. But what happened is many in the pagan culture, we know the power of a rumor and the power of a scandal and how it spreads They, knowing that the pagan unbelievers were not going to probably show up to a service before the sun came up, this rumor began to spread as the believers began to say how much they loved each other and they greet each other affectionately. And it allowed legs to be able to take part, saying that this was this, this corrupted sexual group practicing incest. Number six, that they worship a weak and poor God. So because many of the Christians were themselves weak, poor, right? Not noble. As I picked this up in 1 Corinthians. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were powerful uh, in comparison to the world. They looked at the church that had many people that were servants. Now, in, as he responds to this, he, he points out that even there's even people uh, of the highest nobilities that are Christians. So he says, your accusation, number one, is, is incorrect, but the accusation that the pagan man makes towards the believers, the insult that he makes, listen to this, is that if your God was actually strong and powerful, you Christians wouldn't be so weak and poor. The health and wealth gospel has always had an audience, hasn't it? The pagans look and say, look, if God was really powerful and for you, if your God was really powerful, if your God really, this Jesus really rose from the dead, if he really is who you say he is, why are you also weak and despised and poor? Isn't that incredible? The pagan idea of looking at and the mistake that they would make by looking at their own lives and thinking, well, if, if I'm healthy, I must be righteous. What a tragic mistake that so many unbelievers are stuck in. Well, God must be mad at me because this sickness has occurred. Judging God by circumstances. It's a God of the roll of the dice. And seventh, they're called atheists. The Christians are called atheists. Try that one on. (laughs) Why are they called atheists? Because they deny the Roman gods. Like Hinduism, the Romans worshipped multiple, multiple, many, many gods, and the Christians would not worship them. And so they were called atheists. Atheists. So there's so many other sources that we could look at. Even today in our own culture, we know we could list a multitude of insults that Christians are labeled with. 
And so I took some time to do so. You'll see them on social media. You'll see them in other places. Generalities placed upon Christians. And here's why it's so important, believer, that we do not shy back from society, but specifically that we don't withdraw from unbelieving family members and friends and co-workers or neighbors. Because when you actually are able to sit across from them, it blows these accusations out of the water. Just as any believer in the second century that would have come to one of these churches would have seen that these insults, they have no basis in reality. The believers aren't cannibals. They're not practicing these things. They're insults. They're slanderous. So in our culture today, how many insults can you think of? How many phobes or ists are there? Christians today, we're called bigots, homophobes, racists, sexists, non-compassionate hypocrites who are truly not pro-life because we spend so much time talking about protecting and defending life in the womb that they may be born. We're called things like anti-intellectual, gullible, anti-science, colonizers, oppressors, proponents of hate speech. These are slanders, just a few that are given toward Christians. And it's one thing just to say if that in this room. But for many of you who are business owners, who are professors, who work in so many different places, who have family members that may step back or accuse you of these insults, it does hurt. It does take a toll. And for some, it may cost them economically as it was doing in this time. And so how important is it for the church to be the church? We don't, we gather to worship Christ, but we also gather and we're bonded together, encouraging each other to love and good deeds. Why? Because in the flesh, we don't want to do love and good deeds. In the flesh, we want a pound of flesh. And he tells them this in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. So there's two components to this. Number one, it could very well be possible that some of the insults that the believers in what's present day Turkey, these churches could be accused of these three components. And he knows that, and he's telling them, well, don't actually do the insults that they're giving toward you. Don't actually be a... You're, you're not murderers, right? You're not thieves. You're not busybodies here. But don't be, right? Because whether it's the servants that are being insulted and the desire to want to take a pound of flesh and to commit murder, or at least murder in their heart to hate them, as we saw in Matthew chapter 5, or whether it's the idea of, you know what, if you're going to insult me, I'm going to insult you, this third component, as a meddler. As believers, we leave the judgment to God, and we are free to respond with love. We're, res- we're free to respond with in, in, in good, faithful ways. But let none of you suffer as a, as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer. Don't do the things that they're trying to pressure you into or to shame you out of abiding in Christ. It's hard not to repay reviling with reviling, isn't it? It is. It's hard. But be not surprised. We're on guard. We're sober-minded as we looked at last week. Because Christ is King. He loves us and He's reigning even when words do hurt. 
So abide in Him. Trust the Lord. Rest in the Spirit. And do good. That's good news that we have. We are so loved by our faithful Creator, King, and Judge that we can focus upon doing good in a little while. He's not made a mistake in placing us where He's placed us. Verses 16 through 19. Why can we do this? Why can we focus upon doing good in a little while? Because we are so secure as the beloved of God in Christ. We are so secure that we ought to repay evil with good. We're so secure that the insults of the world will not shake us down. I used an example of athletics at the very beginning, so I'll use one more if you'll allow me. If you watch any sporting event, you'll see oftentimes, and football is a great example of this, all the talk that happens between plays. It's almost distasteful. It's almost you like can't watch it. There's just so much talking back and forth. The defensive backs are just talking the whole time to the receivers. Why are they doing that? Why are they talking? And a lot of them, after the game, they're shaking hands and they're good to go, like they're friends. But, but in the heat of the moment, what they're talking. Why are they talking? Because they're trying to distract them. They're trying to cause them to not perform. And believers in this way are to be aware that the world will talk. Because the evil one, as we'll see in two weeks evil one roams and he talks through them to try to distract the believer to not abide in Christ to act in the way of the world and that way to try to mock the Lord but believers abide believers stay steadfast because we're so secured as the beloved of God this is interesting this term Christian he says in verse 16 yet if anyone suffers as a Christian a Christian we know in Acts chapter 11 is not made up as a as a term of belovedness but it's made up by the unbelievers at Antioch who are labeling in a derogatory fashion this group of people, these Christians, these people that are no longer thinking like themselves, but they're thinking like Christ, this one that they worship who was crucified and died, and they claimed rose again. They're thinking like Him, these Christians. And so I wonder, I think, I wonder if it's intentional that He's doing this, knowing that that word Christian had at least... For some people, a derogatory language to it. He says, if anyone insults you, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed of the name of Christ. Don't be ashamed to think like Christ. Don't be ashamed to proclaim Christ, to make disciples of Christ. Don't be ashamed of that name. If you look over in the book of Romans, let's flip there for a moment if you would. In Romans chapter 12, I'd like to read together verse 17 through 21 for us. If you're in the Pewback Bible, that's page 948. But Paul's words to the Roman Christians sounds very similar to this text. And the same charge that's given. So as you're flipping there to Romans 12, verse 17 through 21, I want to read verse 16 through 19 of 1 Peter Chapter 4, so it's fresh in our mind. As you flip there, let me read First Peter text again, so it's fresh in your mind. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator, 
while doing good. Now listen to the words that Paul writes in verses 17 through 21 of Romans 12. He tells the believers, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see the same themes? Those in Christ being the beloved of God. So secure to be able to repay and do good. And he fleshes out what a number of the good is that believers are free in Christ now to be able to do. Why can we do that? Because believer, you are so secure in Christ that our energy doesn't have to be in figuring out how it's all going to work out. But we can focus upon doing good today to the weak and even to the one who insults us for the name of Christ. We need not be ashamed. The believer finds true hope, true joy, true peace, true love in the Lord, even in the little whiles of hardships. There was a tremendous work about 400 years ago by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. Burroughs. Burroughs, maybe French. And it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It is a diamond of a book. And in that, as so many of the Puritans did, he gives this long list of reasons that believers can have contentment in a world of chaos and even of hurt and suffering and sickness and death. I want to read a small portion, a couple paragraphs, two paragraphs worth, of reason number nine in the rear jewel of Christian contentment. Not only in good things does a Christian have the due of God's blessing and find them very sweet to him, but in all the afflictions, all the evils that befall him, he can see love and can enjoy the wetness of love in his afflictions as well as in God's mercies. The truth is that the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love that Jesus Christ came from. Jerome said it this way, He is a happy man who is disciplined when the stroke is a stroke of love. All God's strokes are strokes of love and mercy. All God's ways are mercy and truth to those that fear Him and love Him. The ways of God, the ways of affliction, as well as the ways of prosperity, are mercy and love to Him. Grace gives a man an eye, a piercing eye, to pierce into the counsel of God. Those eternal counsels of God for good to Him, even in His afflictions. He can see the love of God in every affliction as well as in prosperity. Now, this is a mystery to an unbelieving heart. They can see no such things. Perhaps they think God loves them when He prospers them and makes them rich, but they think God loves them not when He afflicts them. That is a mystery. But grace instructs men in that mystery. Grace enables men to see love in the very frown of God's face and so comes to receive contentment. Peter says, let us not be ashamed when we suffer, beloved. What a reminder 
beloved, of love and joy and peace and hope that is yours in Christ. You are forgiven and loved. So we can focus now on doing good. The reality of bitterness because of insults. The reality of bitterness because of death. The reality of bitterness because of God's timing not working out the way that we want to can make so many believers stay on the sidelines of disciple-making. May it never be of us. Because we are secure as the beloved of God in Christ. I want to ask you a question to consider this morning. Very literal question. Believer. What would you pay financially, truly? What would you pay for a Christian so in love with God, so committed to knowing Jesus and seeing others to, to know Him, what would you pay for one of them to move next door to an unbelieving family member of yours? What would you pay for one of them to, to move to the office right next to that unbelieving family member? What would you pay for them to befriend them? What would you pay for them to be so on fire that they would not stop showing hospitality? They would be so burdened with prayer for your family member that they would pursue them with their very lives. That any coldness that your unbelieving family member would give them, they would not stop. But they would continue to show the grace and mercy and love of God upon them. What would you pay for that person to do so? The burdens of having unbelieving family members. Knowing that the same God who is so thorough in His judgment, who begins not only with the household of God because He loves us and longs for us to be His light bearers in this world, the same thorough impartial judge will judge our family that does not know Christ. What would you pay? And here it is. That's us. The Lord has placed us sovereignly and by His great mercy where He has placed us for a reason. You work where you work. You study where you study. You live where you live. You go to the grocery store when you go to the grocery store. All by God's great kindness to deploy us for this little while to be and make disciples for the glory of God. And so let us pursue them knowing that we are answers to that prayer, not being paid financially to do so, but by God's good and gracious deployment. And if we're caught up only in the things of the world, we will miss the charge here to be free to do good. What a privilege. Amen? What a privilege. What a privilege. So, we are so loved in God. That we get to live lives of response in the little while. That we get to gather with the beloved of the Lord to remember who we actually are. And we can remember that we are so free and secure in God, our great judge, our great creator, our great king, that he has deployed us for this little while. So let's be faithful in our service. Let's love because he has loved us. Amen.
Our next steps, three questions. Number one, or three targets in many of these. Over a meal today, would you share an instance of when you have mistakenly aimed for these four components we speak of with Advent and the coming of Christ? Would you be able to share of a season? Could be today for lunch, could be time for dinner, could be another time. But over a meal, at some point, would you be able to discuss a time in which you aimed for hope, you aimed for love, you aimed for peace, you aimed for joy, and you missed them because you didn't simply aim for Christ? It was the, two, the true personification of all of those things. You aim for those things and you miss them, but the times where you aim for the one that we celebrate His coming as we think of this Christmas Eve, we'll gather at 4 o'clock this Thursday. And we'll celebrate and we'll pause and we'll remember and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. You'll leave with a nice little gift as well. But we celebrate the gift, the giving that God has done in sending of the Son. But can you share of a time in which you aim for those things and miss them because you didn't simply focus upon Christ, the true giver and the true source of true love, joy, peace, and hope? Secondly, in what ways can you reframe your perspective to see that God is perhaps preparing to give us a brighter spotlight in the sufferings as the world appears to be looking more and more and more? Representing the first John chapter 4, spirit of the Antichrist, who he told us 2,000 years ago was already in the world. Can you reframe yourself? Can you reframe your understanding to not look at the world and say, there goes the world, things are hopeless, to rather say, God has intentionally given believers a greater contrast to the unbelieving world to proclaim his glory. This is not a glass half-full type perspective. That's not what we're talking about. It's the reality that God has not made of us a mistake in deploying us in this season of history, in this location of geography. He's not made a mistake. And so, no matter what happens to the unbelieving world, we should not be surprised, but we should be excited and, and opportunistic to say God has given us an opportunity to live lives of such sacrificial love together. That we will be a greater contrast to the unbelieving world. What an opportunity. And third, consider word, worship, service, and family. How are you preparing to face the fiery trials that can surprise us and take us by surprise in 2021? A few weeks away. Intentionally, we structure our bulletin in a way to think through that mature disciples, we are devoted to the word with a group of people. We're gathered together for corporate worship. We live lives of sacrificial service for the Lord has deployed us. And so this is just one tool to be able to stop and reflect and say, God, what have you shown me? How am I preparing to not be surprised? God is good and He is faithful. It is a privilege to be able to sing these songs of response together, isn't it? O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Would you stand together as we sing in response?